like to begin the sermon this afternoon with a little story about a group of Presbyterian ministers that attended a conference in Scotland. The conference was held in a very beautiful castle with a very beautiful surroundings. Actually, my wife and I were able to spend one night in a castle just south of Edinburgh. It was very nice, very pleasant. But during a break in the conference, one of the ministers said, let's go for a walk around the grounds. I noticed a river down in the valley down there. Let's walk down there and take a look at the grounds. So they walked around, were looking at things, and they saw a bridge. They said, let's go across the bridge, get a view from the castle from the other side. They didn't see a little sign that was down beside the bridge that said, danger, uh, bridge is falling apart, don't cross. But they started to cross, and one of the groundsmen saw them starting to walk across the bridge, and he yelled at them. He said, don't cross the bridge, it's not in good shape. And one of the ministers yelled back, that's okay, we're Presbyterian ministers, we're here for the conference, we have faith, it'll be all right. The older gentleman said, you may be Presbyterian ministers full of faith, but if you go through the bottom of that bridge, you're going to be Baptists. (laughs) You know, Baptists believe in baptism by immersion, total immersion under the water. The ministers didn't recognize the dangerous situation that they were facing. They, They were oblivious to the dangers that were surrounding them. And I think many people in the world today, especially in America and other places, and perhaps some even in the church, don't recognize the danger that surrounds us, especially in the world of religion. I'd like to ask you a question. What is one of the most dangerous challenges that we face in the Western world today, especially in America, Canada, Britain, Australia, New Zealand, and other nations that have been part of the Western so-called Christian heritage. What's one of the most dangerous challenges that we face? If we break this more personal, what's one of the biggest dangers that you face as an adult, as a young person, as a child, growing up in our secular materialistic world. Perhaps it's a problem or a challenge or a danger that you're not quite fully aware of, yet it's there. I would suggest that one of the most dangerous things that we face today is the growing doubt, skepticism, and hostility to religion, especially the Christian religion. And the increasing lack of faith in God, the Bible, and biblical values. Now, there are many today that say that's no big deal. You know, uh, we're, we're actually growing and maturing. We've broken free from the, the shackles of religion. We don't need religion anymore. We don't need superstition. We've grown beyond that need. I want to show in the sermon this afternoon that that's very dangerous reasoning. Very dangerous reasoning. And it's going to bring serious consequences on our nations 
And it's going to bring serious consequences on any individual that gets caught up in this type of thinking. In the sermon today, I want to explore why we are losing faith in God, faith in the Bible, and faith in biblical values today. Why is this happening? And why is this critical to you and to the future of our nation and to individual futures? I also want to show how you can build your faith and grow in faith. Because there are things that you can do, and there will be consequences if you don't. I also want to explain why faith is important to God and to your future. Dr. Meredith has mentioned numerous times, part of our mission as a church is to build an atmosphere of faith within the church. Because we need that. So I've entitled the sermon this afternoon, Building Real Faith. Building Real Faith. I'm going to give you five steps, five things that you can do as we get into the sermon. And I hope you'll take notes so that you can review those notes later. And you can put those steps into practice. Dr. Meredith gave a sermon on faith recently. I was talking to Mr. Ames yesterday. He said, what are you going to talk about? I said, faith. He said, you just took my sermon. (laughs) But he will come at it from another direction. We all come at these things from a little bit different directions. To begin with, and I've used some Roman numerals if, if you want to keep track of it. Roman numeral one, I want to ask the question, is there a growing lack of faith today? Or am I just up here blowing smoke? Did I just make up this issue so that I'd have something to talk about this afternoon? Not really. I'm going to give you some examples and some of the evidence. Newsweek magazine, April 2009, you can look look it up on the Internet, cover article, said the decline and fall of Christian America. There's a big cross on the front, and then these words were written on the cross. 2009, five years ago, the decline and fall of Christian America. Statement in the article said America has moved into a post-Christian phase. America has moved into a post-Christian phase. Religion is losing influence in American society. A Reuters news release, April 2009 made the statement, God is less a force in American politics and culture than at any other time in recent memory. This is a historical shift. It's not just some little thing. President Obama made a statement about the same time. He said, whatever we once were, we are no longer a nation of Christians. We're also a Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu nation, and a nation of unbelievers. He was just stating a fact, because that's the way we are today. We published in the uh, News and Prophecy a couple of uh, weeks ago an article that came out in Britain. Prime Minister David Cameron had made a statement that uh, we needed, talking about the British, he said, we need more Christian values in politics. That is responsibility, hard work, love, compassion. He then stated 
that Britain is a Christian country, alluding to the fact that Britain's state church, the Anglican church, uh, is a quote-unquote Christian church. But as we published in the article, it said, but critics jumped on Mr. Cameron's comments, pointing out that Britain is not a Christian country. This was in a telegraph, one of the major newspapers over there. Fifty people signed a letter that was published in the newspaper saying that Britain, or his comments, uh, Cameron's comments, were divisive and reminding him that Britain is predominantly a non-religious society. This is happening. This is making news. There was another article that talked about a British headmaster over there at one of the schools said that state schools are producing an amoral generation, a generation without any morals. They don't know what is right. They don't know what is wrong because they have no foundation. They've thrown away that foundation. A couple of other quick articles. Religious News Service, this is on the Internet, mentions a new report on global religious identity shows that while Christians and Muslims make up the two largest groups of people, over two billion Christians and over a million and a, or a billion and a half Muslims. Those with no religious affiliation, including atheists and agnostics, are now the third religious group, third largest religious group in the world. People with no religious affiliation are the third largest religious, quote unquote, group in the world. Huffington Post, and they post some very interesting things. Uh, Huff and Huff and Huff. Uh, Had an article headlined, Losing Our Religion, Doubt by the Numbers. It said 31% of respondents, almost one in three, under the age of 30, acknowledge harboring doubts about the existence of God. One-third of our young people in America Doubt that God exists. More young people are expressing doubts about God than at any time since the Pew organization started uh, asking these questions. And the person who wrote the article says, as a free thinker and secular humanist, I find these numbers cheering. I'm excited about these things. One other article from the Huffington Post said the rise of religious non or nuns, the people without any religious conviction, uh, is growing at any at a time at, at a faster rate than any time ever in history. So this is what's happening today, brethren. Books are being published today entitled "Losing Our Religion: God Less America." I came across one in England before I came back here entitled The Death of Christian Britain. It said the tragedy in Britain today is the faithful are being led by the faithless. People that don't believe in God are leading the religious organizations in Britain. What we're watching today, brethren, is something that is historic, something that is prophetically significant, and something that was foretold thousands of years ago in the Bible, and yet it's happening today right in front of our eyes. So I'd like to ask another question. What is significant 
about what we're just talking about. What is significant about this loss of faith in God, Bible, and biblical values? Why is it significant? And why should we be concerned about this? This is Roman numeral number two. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 18 and verse 8. Luke chapter 18 and verse 8. It's a parable talking about this unjust judge, and the lady kept coming back and coming back and coming back, and finally the judge did something because he was pushed to do it. And Jesus mentions down in verse 6, says, Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge did. And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he, God, will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What Jesus is saying, when I come back, will I find faith? This lack of faith, this loss of faith, Jesus is indicating is going to happen at the end of the age, just before I return. It's going to be something that is going to be very noticeable. It's going to take place and it's going to happen at the end of the age. We're watching something, brethren, that is going to build towards the end of the age. We're just seeing the beginnings of it. This is what is significant about this loss of faith in God, the Bible, and biblical values. Turn back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 quickly. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. In other words, as we get close to the end of the age, something's going to happen. We're going to be able to notice these things. Don't be soon soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word of letter, as from us, as though the day of Christ has come. In other words, don't be misled. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, the return of Jesus Christ at the end of the age, will not come unless two things happen. Unless two things happen. Unless the falling away, this rebellion against God comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. So we're going to notice these things. These are going to be earth-shaking events. Things are going to happen that we're going to be able to notice and see. Some have felt, you know, in recent years that this falling away only has to happen or can only happen within the church of God. And yet if you turn back, let's look at two other scriptures. Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. Beginning in verse 23. It's talking about something that's going to happen at the end of the age. Right before that, it was talking about Gentile kingdoms. It says, in the latter time of their kingdom, the latter time of these Gentile kingdoms, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having a fierce countenance, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. It's talking about a false leader that's going to arise, going to be empowered by Satan. It's not by his own power. You can read about these individuals that are going to do this in Revelation 13. And he shall destroy fearfully 
and shall prosper and thrive. It will be for about a a three-and-a-half-year period. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. He's going to be persecuting God's people. But notice this phrase up here in verse 23, when transgressors have reached their fullness. This can be translated um, in a very interesting way. The word fullness means wickedness. And this can be translated when the wickedness of people exceeds the limits of God's mercy. When the wickedness of people exceeds the limits of God's mercy. When they've crossed a line. When they have reached the end of their rope. God is going to intervene. You can go back and look in Genesis chapter 6. God intervened and brought that pre-flood civilization to an end because it says the earth was corrupt and filled with violence and all flesh had corrupted itself. We're going to reach another period of time in history when God is going to say, you've had it, you've reached the end of your rope, this is it, this is the end of the line, and I'm going to intervene mercifully. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 23. He's going to intervene at a time when wickedness exceeds the limits of God's mercy. You know, you do this with your kids sometimes. You'll let them do things and get away with things. You say, no, don't do that. Don't do that again. And then eventually, that's it. (laughs) This is the end. You've had it. We've got to stop this whole thing. And God's going to do the same thing. Let's look at one other scripture. We're talking about events that are going to take place at the end of the age, that are going to mark the end of the age. They're going to help us understand we've reached the end of the age. We're approaching the end of the age. Isaiah chapter 24. This is part of a series of chapters here on what is called the Little Apocalypse. It's talking about a time of judgment that's going to come on the entire earth. Down in verse 5, it says, The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants. So this is talking about a time when the earth is defiled under its inhabitants. And it's defiled, why? Because they, they, and it's talking about the people of the world, not just the people of the church, the people of the world, because they have transgressed the laws. It's talking about the laws of God. You know, the Ten Commandments... You'll be blessed whether or not you're in the church if you obey them. And you'll reap consequences whether or not you're in the church if you disobey those commandments. Because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, and broken the everlasting covenant. And one of the everlasting covenants is if you obey God, you're going to be blessed. If you disobey God, you will also reap consequences. So it doesn't matter whether you're in the church or not. These are laws that act on people. Therefore, that is because the people of the world have broken the laws of God, the curse has devoured the earth, and those who dwell on it are desolate. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned. There's going to be consequences to the world. This is what we are approaching, brethren, the end of the age when the whole world is turning away from anything that resembles Biblical values. You know, this past week up in Canada, they had a series of uh, celebrations all over Canada. The biggest one was in Toronto. It was called World Pride 
Day or World Pride Celebration. Thousands of gay people, homosexuals, transsexuals, whatever, descended on Toronto. And the crosswalks on the streets were painted with rainbow signs and rainbow colors. Thousands of people. World Pride. And what they were telling people was that uh, uh, you need to celebrate who you are. If you're a gay, a lesbian, a transsexual, you need to celebrate who you are. Let everybody know. No shame. One person who was interviewed made some very interesting statements. He said there's a lot of of fun and a lot of pride here today. He says there are no boundaries when it comes to LGBT, the the LGBT quest for rights. There's no boundaries. He said there is, and no religion can stand in the way. No religion can stand in the way of what we are doing and gaining our rights. One of the reasons for the animosity towards Christianity today and Christian values is that the Bible does say homosexuality is an abomination to God. And people don't like that, especially a very vocal minority of 3 or 4% of the population. But, brethren, this is what's coming. Now, how does this relate to the nations that we live in today, the Israelite nations for the most part, and nations that follow our example? Turn to Hosea, chapter 8. Hosea, chapter 8. We're just going to skip through the chapter here. The whole book is written toward the Israelite nations, Israel and Judah. But in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, God is going to come like an eagle against the house. Uh, he shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord because they, that is the Israelite nations, have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. I've told them the homosexuality and all these other things are wrong, but they're doing it anyways and broadcasting it because they've rebelled against my law. Down in verse 7 and 8, they will sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. All this stuff is going to come back on them, the consequences at a point in time. Verse 8, Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the Gentiles. They're going to go into captivity. Now that sounds archaic today. Well, how can our nations go into captivity? You know, we're the most powerful nation on the earth unless somebody jams our computers unless we can't get uh, oil to uh, uh, fuel our jet planes and stuff like that, unless something happens, something is going to happen. For they are going up to Assyria like a wild donkey alone by itself. Down in verse 12, I have written for him, that is for Israel, the great things of my law. I've given the Israelite nations my laws. Those laws would set them apart from the rest of the world. And they've thrown them away. They were considered a strange thing. Yeah, the stuff about dietary laws. We got refrigerators today. We don't need information about clean and unclean foods. Homosexuality is whatever makes you feel good. What it says in the Bible, that was written a long time ago. We don't need that. I remember listening to this uh, Episcopal bishop who was the first one to be ordained as a bishop, and he was gay, a guy from up in New England. 
And he was talking to the people when he was ordained. He said, look, the Bible only has a couple of scriptures about homosexuality. And uh, they were written a long time ago. You just need to get to know me. I'm a, I'm a great guy. You know, forget the stuff that's in the book. Just get to know me. This is what we're living in today, brethren. I've given Israel the great things of my law. They were considered a strange thing. Down in verse 14. Israel has forgotten his maker. People today are forgetting God. They're forgetting his laws. Latter part of verse 14, it says, I will send fire upon his cities and it shall devour his palaces, the leading cities of the United States and Britain and other places around the world. Brethren, this is the significance of what we're seeing today. We're seeing these prophecies come alive. Some people say, it's no big deal, you know, things just go on and on and on. No, God prophesied specific things were going to take place as we approach the end of the age. We're watching these things happening today. And serious consequences are coming because we're approaching the end of the age. So we need to understand that. We need to understand the times in which we're living. These are not normal times. If you could bring some people back to life that died maybe in 1940, 1950, 1960, and let them watch the news some night and watch these gay parades up in Canada. You know, you watch those a little bit. It's like watching a freak show. Men dressed up like women and women dressed up like men and painted all up and everybody dancing around. There's no barriers today. There's no boundaries today. And God is watching all of this. And it's going to come to a point in time where God says, you've had it. This is enough. We're stopping the movie right here. It's over. And we're going to change the channel. And we're going to go in a different direction. And as we heard in the sermonette, you and I have been called, brethren, to turn the world right side up. To put the world back on track. The way it should be going. Okay, Roman numeral three. Why is this happening? Why is this happening? How has it happened that so-called Christian nations have turned away from God and gone in a totally different direction? A couple things very quickly. I think you're familiar with the scripture in Revelation 12:9 that says Satan has deceived the whole world. This is the root cause of the problem. That Satan has influenced people He's moved the world away from God. He's deceived the entire world. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. You you disbelieve the Bible. You throw the Bible away. You have no idea what's coming in the future. You throw away the biblical values of right and wrong. Then nobody has any idea of what's right and wrong. This is the ground, this is really the, the big part of the problem. This is the reason for the problem. But in a practical perspective, who did it? <laughs> who made these things happen? A couple of very interesting scriptures. Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3. God tells us who's responsible. Now we're responsible if we follow misguided people. 
But in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12, it's a prophecy that helps us understand why things are happening the way they are today. It says, as for my people, children are their oppressors. In other words, they're pushing an envelope. Women rule over them. And those who lead you cause you to err. Those who lead you cause you to err. Your leaders are taking you down the wrong path. It was interesting when Mr. Dukach gave a sermon down in Texas years ago. He says, we are going where angels fear to tread. And we're going to change this and change this and change this. We don't need these dietary laws anymore. And there were people that went out that evening and ate shrimp for dinner, ate crabs and whatever else. And their reasoning was, they told us we could. They told us we could. So they followed their leaders down a wrong path. People in America today, in Britain and other places, are following their leaders down a wrong path. In Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 23, now we could go to other scriptures, but these are just a couple that help us understand. Jeremiah 23, verse 1, it says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. He's talking about the leaders in Israel. Woe. Bad things are going to happen to the leaders who destroy and scatter the sheep of my my flock. Down in verse 25 through 27. It says, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name. You know, they had a, uh, I think we wrote this up too in the News and Prophecy this week. They had a special service at the Washington National Cathedral. It's an Episcopalian or Anglican cathedral there in Washington, D.C. And they had a transsexual person who had been a, probably a female before their changes, is now a male. The transsexual gave the sermon. And he was introduced by this uh, Episcopal bishop uh, from New Hampshire. But the message was, we here, read it in the News and Prophecy, we here at the Washington National Cathedral Uh, want to celebrate and send a message of acceptance to young gay and lesbian and transsexual people because your orientation is good. It's good. The Bible says something very different. But this is what is happening at the highest levels in our country today. The leaders are leading us in the wrong direction. Let's finish the scriptures here. I've heard what prophecies the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of their own, of the deceit in their own heart, who try and make my people forget my name by their dreams. Verse 32, Behold, I am against those who prophesy false dreams or make false statements, says the Lord, and tell them and cause and tell them and cause my people to err, to err by their lies and by their recklessness. Yet I did not send them or command them, 
Therefore, they shall not profit this people at all. Brethren, this is what's happening today. The leaders of our country, religious, academic, political, are pushing people, leading people, promoting things in a wrong direction. And this is what this is why these things are happening. And Mr. Armstrong used to say years ago that people look at the world and they can't understand what's going on. It's one of the reasons they can't understand is like walking into the last five or ten minutes of a movie. And you don't know what went on before. When you look at the world today, why is this happening? What's going on? The cultural historians, people who study the social conditions and cultures, have come up with three categories or three eras of time. And they call it pre-modern, modern, and postmodern. And I think this offers a very interesting insight to what's happening today. Sometimes we talk about cultures that are not modern because they don't have telephones, they don't have cell phones, they don't have this, don't have that. That's looking at things through a technological eye or through the eye of technology. These cultural historians are looking at ideas, and they categorize a pre-modern culture as a culture in which things have gone on the same for thousands of years, where religion has not changed, where ideas have not changed, where men and women have had the same roles for thousands of years, hundreds of years, thousands of years, uh, and where the truths that they talk about, they just never change. They call these pre-modern cultures. Modern cultures, modernism, again, just looking at their classification, I think is interesting. They say the modern world began in the 1500s. The modern world began in the 1500s with the... uh, Technology that was developed at that time as well as ideas. The printing press became, you know, was used at that time or developed at that time. They began translating the Bible and printing the Bible into common languages. And people began to realize what's in the Bible doesn't agree with what the Catholic Church has been teaching us. So it began to shake up the world at that time. The results were the Reformation and the Renaissance, and things began to change. And the idea here is that the modern world began about the 1500. When things began to change, they began to question. Uh, what's interesting is that they classify, these, these cultural historians classify the Middle Ages as a pre-modern period of time because the Catholic Church was dominating all of Europe at that time. The religious teaching hadn't changed in a 1,000 years, roughly from 500 A.D. till about uh, 1500 A.D. Uh, There were no change in the roles of men and women. Uh, Right and wrong were still adultery and fornication, even though people did those things. They they realized it was wrong, and then people could go to confession, and they could pay their little bit of money, and they could be forgiven. But they realized it was wrong. Postmodern period began about 1800. Whenever, instead of just asking questions about the church and just asking questions about the Bible, as they did in the modern era with scientific discoveries and things like that, in the postmodern era, science began to replace the scriptures as authority. And secularism began to grow and replace religion as an influence. 
Whereas in the modern era, towards the 1500s, they ask questions. Well, maybe God doesn't exist. Maybe the Bible isn't inspired. Um, maybe there's, 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 there really isn't a purpose in life. In the postmodern era, beginning about 1800, they began saying there is no God. There is no God. There is no such thing as absolute truth. There is no purpose for human life. There are no universal values. And we're living basically today in a postmodern world because these are the ideas that are floating around today. There's no truth. There's no universal values. There's no purpose. This is the world we're living in today. And these ideas have continued into the centuries in which we're living today. A couple of examples just with some quotes from some notable individuals where you can pick up this postmodern attitude. It began about the 1800s. Napoleon made a statement. Knowledge and history are enemies of religion. Knowledge and history are enemies of religion. Now, he's talking about the Catholic Church, basically, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. Karl Marx called religion the opiate of the people. It's a drug that keeps people, enables them to cope. Religion is a lot more than that. But these were the ideas of leaders. Freud said that religion is an illusion. It's a mental illness. He was an Austrian living in the 1800s. Albert Hubbard, I'm showing used to quote him from time to time. He said religion was originally for slaves. And it gave them consolation. In other words, it's there as kind of a crutch, but you really don't need it. H.L. Mencken, another individual, he said, God is the refuge of the incompetent, the helpless, and the miserable. These were the attitudes that developed in this postmodern period of time where nothing was sacred. Richard Dawkins, this atheist uh, in Britain, and some of the stuff he writes is basically is, is really way out in left field. But he says that because people read it and he wants to sell books. So the, the more exaggerated and the more uh, not only profound but profane statements that he makes, people get excited about it. He said, the Bible is weird. The God of the Old Testament is a monster and no more probable than the tooth fairy. This stuff is basically sacrilegious, but these are things that are floating around in society today. He said, religion is a virus of the mind. It's the product of misfiring parts of the brain. These are the attitudes that are being promoted in the media today. So it's not surprising if young people hear these things and older people hear these things. Well, these are educated people, so they must know what they're talking about. They don't. You know, the textbook that we're using for OTS this year, actually we've used for several years, and also for the New Testament books, talks about in theology departments, few of the people are what they call maximalists, but most of the faculty are minimalists. A maximalist believes that the Bible is the inspired word of God, believes that God is, that God is a real person. Minimalists don't believe the Bible is inspired. They don't believe in a personal God. They don't believe that Joseph ever existed. 
in Egypt. They don't believe there was ever an Israelite bondage in Egypt, that Moses didn't exist, there was no exodus, there was no conquest of Canaan by Joshua, there was no David, there was no Goliath. And these are people that in many cases teach theology or teach religion classes. We'll talk a little bit more uh, a little bit later about uh, Dr. Bart Ehrman, who is the chairman of the religion department, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's written a number of best-selling books about the Bible. He basically knocks it. Now, he grew up and got religion, you know, the worldly view of Christianity, in high school. He went to Moody Bible Institute and then to Wheaton College in Illinois. These are fundamentalist Christian schools. And then he went to Princeton Theological Seminary, got a master and a doctor's degree. And he's one of the leading uh, critics of the Bible today. And he teaches a class at University of North Carolina, three or 400 students uh, each semester. And he basically runs down the Bible. And he asks a lot of questions to kind of shake up the students. And he made a comment in one of his lectures that some of my students hold their hands over their ears and hum (laughs) so that they won't hear what I'm saying because it's shaking them up. He's an agnostic. He doesn't believe the Bible's inspired and he's destroying whatever faith these young people have. So it's not surprising people go to college and they come away without any faith. These are some of the danger areas that are out there today that we've got to be aware of and be able to deal with. To conclude this section, it's the religious and academic and political leaders that are sowing the seeds of doubt and are causing people to err today. The shepherds of Israel, the shepherds of Israel that are supposed to be lights to the world and point people in the right direction are actually at the very source of the problem. And they're going to be held accountable You know, Jesus said people that follow misguided leaders, they're all going to fall in the ditch. There's going to be consequences. This is what we're facing today, brethren, in the world in which we live. But this was foretold thousands of years ago. Let's go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3. The people laugh at the Bible. They make fun of it. But the Bible explains why things are the way they are today. It explains what is happening in the world. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 3, Peter says, Know this, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of his coming? He's not coming back. There's an article in one of the news magazines within the last six months asking, uh, will he ever return? Will he ever return? And the essence of the article was people uh, when uh, in the year 1900, when it turned over, people were expecting Christ to return then. You go back in other times in the past, people were expecting Christ to return at certain times. Uh, Didn't happen. So the person writing this article was asking the question, will he ever return? Because he hasn't come whenever we all thought he was going to come before But the Bible says scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. 
And they will be knocking the Bible, knocking the purpose of life, undermining people's beliefs. So the Bible explains the significance of what we're seeing today. Peter said in the last days, the end of the age, this is when these things are going to be taking place. Okay, Roman numeral four. Why is the subject of faith so important? Why is the subject of faith so important? Remember Jesus said in Luke 18, verse 8, when I come back, will I find faith on the earth? Why is that important? Why should we be concerned about that? Go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Again, the Bible answers the question. Is it important? Is it something we need to worry about? Hebrews 11 and verse 6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please him, to please God. For those who come to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You know, we come out of this world, we begin living God's way. Why? Because we're hoping for a reward. We want to be in the coming kingdom of God. We want to gain eternal life. If you're 16, 17, and 18, eternal life seems like a long way away. (laughs) I just want to live this life right now. And, you know, as you get older, and this is all relative, 60, 70, 80, whatever, eternal life begins to sound pretty good. I have all my teeth. (laughs) I won't need my glasses. I have a full head of hair. I'll feel like getting up in the morning. If you can project ahead, if you're 16, 17, and 18, I can remember sitting in, I think before I even went to school, I was five years old, and I watched the kids going to first grade, and they would walk by our house, and I would sit there and realize, I don't have to go to school. I can play all day long. (laughs) And then the next day, I could play all day long. Somehow I wish now, I wish I had a couple more days, because the days go by so quickly. But God says here, very Pointedly, without faith, it's impossible to please God. When we come to him, we must believe that he exists. So what is faith? Let's talk about that a little bit. And how do you build real faith? If you're going to build faith, you need to know what it is. You need to know what it is. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 11 of Hebrews. It says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things that you don't see. Substance is something that's real. This podium has got substance. It's real. It's not my imagination. I could stand up here and bang really hard, but I'd break it, and I'd probably break my hand. (laughs) Because it's real. It's not my imagination. Faith involves substance. It involves evidence. You know, we don't see the kingdom of God here yet, but we, do see, we see evidence that God does work. We ask for his blessing on the ordination that we had. We ask for God's intervention when we are anointed. Now, God will heal in his time and in his way. We had a situation in South Africa recently where 
little kid at school or a young person at school got involved with some other kids and witchcraft and things like that, and they started acting really weird. And the parents called the minister and said, please pray for him. And after the prayer, he started acting normally. See, these things happen. These things happen. We're not just praying to a cloud in the sky. We're praying to God. But faith is the substance of things that we hope for and the evidence of things that we don't see yet. Your faith is real. It's based on real facts. It's based on real evidence. Now, the world doesn't look at faith that way. The world treats faith very lightly. You look up some of the definitions. One definition said, faith is belief without evidence. That's in the world. Or faith is an illogical belief in something that's improbable. The world doesn't take faith seriously. Another person said, you've heard it said that faith can move mountains, but you don't move mountains without steam shovels and dynamite and dump trucks. In other words, you've you got to have something real. Faith isn't real. Well, that's certain people's opinion. Faith is something that we need to prove. If we prove things, then we can have faith and trust in it. Paul mentions this, jot it down in your notes. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, prove all things, examine everything. If you're going to believe it, prove it. Nail it down so that you know that you know that you know that you know. You know, is the Bible inspired? Does God exist? Prove these things to yourself and then hang on to those things. Next, let's talk about five steps for building faith, things that you can do that will actually build your faith. And I would encourage you, write these down, think about it, implement these things in your life, and you will grow in faith because these things work. Number one, if you're going to believe in God, prove that he exists. If you're going to believe in God, prove that he exists. You know, we have a booklet entitled The Real God, Proofs and Promises. You know, these things don't change over time. God is a life giver. He gives life. You know, I taught biology for a number of years. And one of the experiments that was in the biology books was about creating living organisms. The guy mixed up some chemicals and ran some electrical impulses through it, and they got some amino acids. He said, we've created life. But it didn't reproduce. They created some chemicals. But he wrote a letter, or he wrote an article about 15 years later, and he said, uh, creating life turned out to be a lot harder than we thought it was going to be. <laughs> and they haven't been able to create life. God does that. God is a lawgiver. He created animals to reproduce after their kind. People have tried to create other species. They've not been able to do it. I was at a science convention one time where Thaddeus Dobshansky, he was a famous researcher dealing with fruit flies, and uh, one of his graduate students brought him an article one day and said that, Dr. Dobshansky, they said, you've created a new species in our, our laboratory. And they said, you know, we all know you didn't. He says, well, let's prove the newspaper right. <laughs> I said, let's not argue with them. Let's just prove that they're right. Let's continue working. But he was acknowledging we didn't create a new species. Operate, your laws operate. Why is it that you get in trouble if you commit adultery? 
Why is it that you get in trouble if you steal things? Why is it that you get in trouble and things don't work out if you dishonor your parents? Because these are laws. These are laws that God has set in motion. Came across a book entitled Seven Truths That Changed the World. A very interesting book. Talks about discovering Christianity's most dangerous ideas. I'll just mention one of these things today. Talks about one of the truths is that human beings are unique. Now, many people are told today, well, human beings are just like animals. We're just a, you know, we're a naked ape. <laughs> we just don't have the hair, but we're, we're just animals. There is a counter-argument to all of this. Human beings are unique in very different ways. And the book gives you about seven different ways that human beings differ from animals. A couple of examples. Human beings have an inherent spiritual and religious nature. You look at even some of these primitive societies, they're worshiping something. Now you can go down to the dog kennels here in Charlotte. You're not going to find a bunch of dogs out in the back bowing down and worshiping something. <laughs> they do other things to trees beside worship them. <laughs> Human beings are different, but we're not told these things today. Human beings have unique intellectual, cultural, and communicative skills. You know, most of us don't walk around, <coughs> we talk, hello, how are you, thank you very much. Now, some people do do the other thing. <laughs> no, we, we have unique abilities that animals don't have. The, the, the book lists a bunch of these things. We have a value system. You ever seen two dogs arguing with each other? You're wrong. You stole my food. I'm going to call the police on you. No, they just, <laughs> they just bite the other one. <laughs> they take care of it themselves. The sad thing is our leaders aren't teaching us these things. They're not telling people, no, you're not an animal. You're unique. You've been made in the image of God. There's a purpose for your life. People today are being told exactly the opposite things. In Isaiah 46, verses 8 to 11, it mentions there that God alone can predict the future and bring it to pass. God alone can predict the future and bring it to pass. You know, we're watching many of the Bible prophecies come alive in the world today. How did God know at the end of the age that we would be in deep trouble, especially in Israelite nations, that he gave his laws to, and we've thrown them away, and now we're in trouble? How did he know that? Unless God had predict, could predict the future. Psalm 14, verse 1. It says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. This is what the Bible says about these critics. I would encourage you, brethren, maybe go through the booklet, The Real God. Take a week this summer. Do a chapter a day. Think about it, read about it, and ask yourself, do I believe this? Can I put my trust in a God that is described in the Bible? That's point number one. To grow in faith, prove that God exists.
prepare yourself, as we heard in the sermonette. Number two, to believe the Bible proves it's inspired. Is the Bible the inspired word of God? How do I know? How would I know? How can I prove that? Go through the booklet that we've got, the Bible, fact or fiction. And all I did when I wrote the booklet was gather together a lot of material that's out there. It's there. But prove these things for yourself. What's interesting, a couple of scriptures, 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. It says everything, everything in this book has been inspired by God. Is that true? How does that compare with the Koran and some of the other writings? David said in Psalm 119, verse 60, he said, The entirety of your word is true. The entirety of your word is true. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Your word is truth. He told Pilate in John 18, verse 38, I came to explain the truth. What did Pilate say? What is truth? How do we know what truth is? People are saying the same thing today. They're saying there is no truth. There is no ultimate truth. There are no absolute values. Today, truth is being redefined. Whatever you feel is true is true. Tell that to a math teacher. The reason I said one and one is three is I felt it was three. Math teachers say, no, 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 no. (laughs) It's not what you feel. It's what is true. See, a lot of things are being thrown around today as being true, and they're simply not true. Another book that I came across that was quite interesting was entitled Truth Decay. It's a takeoff on tooth decay. (laughs) It was talking about truth decay. Defending Christianity Against Challenges in the Modern World. I'll give you a couple of examples here quickly. In chapter 3 of this book, Truth Decay, it talks about the biblical view of truth. Now, the Greek word for truth means truth, support, something that's stable. The Greek word for truth means a conformity to fact. A conformity to fact or reality. That's what truth is. You know, the world is round because it's round. That's the truth. Gravity works because that's the truth. It's not what I feel. Well, I don't know whether I feel that gravity works or not. Truth is something that corresponds to reality. But this book gives about seven points. It says truth is revealed by God. It's not something we invent. It's not something society just agrees on. Truth is revealed by God. The second point is objective truth exists. means factual truth exists. Truth is not subjective. It's not depending on what you feel. Truth really is true. Truth is absolute, number three. It doesn't change. God doesn't change. His truth doesn't change. 
And this stuff that people are telling you that, well, whatever you feel is true is true. This is nonsense. It's misleading people. It's a lie. Truth is universal. It applies to everyone. It's wrong to lie. It's wrong to steal whatever culture you're in. It's wrong to commit adultery, whatever culture you're in. And it's exclusive. There is only one God. And people don't like to hear that today. Oh, you're exclusivist. You know, you're putting down other people. Truth is truth. It doesn't change. But these are some of the books that are on the market today that I think you'll find will be very profitable, very helpful. Another book entitled Truth Matters. Truth Matters. It was written by three PhDs to counter some of the sensational claims by this Dr. Barderman. Because he makes some very wild claims. He said, the Bible's filled with a bunch of errors. It's, it was written by people whose names are, weren't even on the books. In other words, Matthew didn't write Matthew, and Paul didn't write Colossians, and various people didn't do this or that. He said, we really don't know. He said, we don't even know if there was a resurrection. It was a rumor that God started, and even some of Jesus' disciples began to believe it. But then they were put to death. <laughs> if you were purporting a lie and spreading a lie, would you die for it? No, you wouldn't. But these are some of the ideas that this guy is floating around. But three PhDs wrote a book to basically counter him. It's entitled Truth Matters, written in 2014, in which they challenged some of his ideas. And they said, Ehrman only tells you his side of the story. And he's only one person. There are hundreds of other scholars that don't believe him. But their faith didn't, they didn't lose their faith. Their faith grew, even in what they believe. The book was actually written for college students so that they could counter what they're hearing in class. They're trying to defend the faith for some young people. But these are some of the books that are on the market today. Let's look at a couple of other points here because we're getting close to the end. Number three, walk by faith. Walk by faith. Live by every word of God. Jesus mentions this in Matthew 4, 4. A man should live by every word of God. You put the, the biblical principles into practice. I'd encourage you to go home and read Psalm 1. Read Psalm 1. Read the whole thing. Read it every morning this coming week. Where basically it says, Blessed is the person who obeys God. And the people that don't obey God, we're going to get in trouble. It's, it just works that way. You put these things into practice. Live by every word of God. Go through the booklet on the Ten Commandments. Do a commandment a day. Think about it. Meditate it on it. Meditate on it. If you do these things, this is going to build your faith. Number four, and turn to Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. <clears throat> it's talking about faith. We're breaking into the, the thought here. It says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God. Point number four is fill your mind with God's word. Fill your mind with God's word. You read it in the morning, read it in the evening, think about it. Let the mind of Jesus Christ come into your mind. If you spend some time in Psalm 119, where David says in verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all day long. I think about it. I use it as a guide for my life. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul mentions there, the inward person, the spirit of God within you, needs to be renewed daily. And you renew it by prayer and by study and meditation. These are things, brethren, if you do these things, it's going to build your faith. See, there are things that we can do. And number five, in 2 Peter chapter 1, let's turn there. 2 Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 5, it says, But also for this reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith. In other words, add these things to your faith. You believe in God, you believe in the Bible, then add things to that. Add to your faith virtue. This is courage. The courage to stand up for what you believe. Add to your faith courage. And uh, to, to courage or virtue, knowledge, I would encourage you, you know, buy some of these books, read them, think about them. Be able to deal with the issues as they come up. Second Peter 3.18, jotted in your notes, says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't just be willing to, well, I came into the church, I proved what was true, now I don't have to do anything from now on out. No, we need to be doing these things. And when I came in contact with the church, I didn't go to church right away. I didn't know where it was. So I spent, I don't know, about a month in the library every Sabbath in Jackson, Mississippi. But I didn't know what else to do. I'd go there about 9 o'clock. I'd leave about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And I would just check into this and check into that. Finally got a minister's phone number, and I said, I'd like to come to church. He said, what are you doing on the Sabbath? I said, I go to the library every Sabbath. He said, walk across the street. <laughs> walk across the street to the YWCA. We meet on the second floor. <laughs> but, you know, I was trying to prepare. I was trying to prove what was right because it was very different from the way I was raised. But if you prove these things, then nobody's going to be able to take it away from you. Add these things to your faith. In conclusion, Jesus made the statement that we read earlier, Luke 18, verse 8. When I come back, will I find faith on the earth? The implication was there's not going to be a lot of it. And we went into some of the reasons why there is so little faith today. But we also read in Hebrews 11.6 that without faith it's impossible to please God. We've got to know that he's there. I would encourage you, brethren, ask God to guide you and to help you build your faith. Ask God. You know, Luke 17, verse 5, the apostle said to Jesus, increase our faith, help us. Show us what we need to do. 
And we read these examples in the Bible of Stephen, who was full of faith and Holy Spirit, and God used him powerfully. The Apostle Paul and the other apostles were full of faith and power. Acts 17, and they turned the world upside down. They had an impact on the world because they were full of faith. We have been called to become saints, to reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God and restore all things. Somebody's going to get the opportunity to go to Canada, to Toronto, on World Pride Day, one of these days, (laughs) and explain what the truth is and erase all the rainbow colors off the crosswalks. It's not going to be popular, but you're going to have the power to do that. People give you a bad time, you cause just a little earthquake. (laughs) Yes, sir. (laughs) We're We're ready to go. It's going to be exciting. But it's going to be meaningful. And people are going to learn to be happy doing things God's way. Brethren, I urge you to go home and think about these five steps. Ask yourself, what am I not doing? What could I be doing that will help build an atmosphere of faith within the living church of God so that we can be in the coming kingdom of God and reign with Jesus Christ? Because we've been called, we've been chosen, and we've been faithful.